Hey, so I have a quick question for you guys. Do you guys know someone who loves to argue and always prove that they're right? Like they have mastered the art of arguing. Uh, if that's a yes, but it's the person sitting next to you, then just blink twice for me. Don't point at them, please, all right? Not trying to cause any drama and have to break up any fights after church today, all right? But there are people who love love to do this. And people that are good at proving their point in an argument are like skillful lawyers in a courtroom that are building up a case and stacking up all the evidence to prove that you or someone else was in the wrong. And they can counter every counter argument that you may have against them. Do you know someone like this? Well, the Apostle Paul, yeah, right? Well, the Apostle Paul is that person here in uh, the book of Romans. And I'm sure if he had friends, they'd write him out for loving to have a good argument too, right? But what he's done so far in the first few chapters of Romans is build up a case against all of humanity. And so I'm just gonna jump ahead and tell you what the main point he's trying to prove is. Uh, And then we'll work our way through the passage to see how he gets to this point. But the main thing he's trying to prove uh, and the main thing I want you to take away with today is that the gospel, unlike moralism, shows me that although I fail at obeying God, he remains faithful. Although I fail at obeying God, you fail at obeying God, he remains faithful. And so let me clarify a little bit what I mean by moralism. I'm speaking specifically about religious moralism, which is an emphasis on proper moral behavior. And so the moralist relies on their moral actions. If they pray, fast, go to church and help out in their community, then they're good with God. If uh, they, as long as they don't like lie, steal, cheat, or cuss too much, then They're a good person and deserving of heaven. And so the moralist deceives themselves by believing that good behavior somehow merits eternal life. And so essentially moralism is trying to earn our acceptance from God through our good works. But deep down, there's a a belief that if I don't perfectly obey and I don't perfectly behave, that God will somehow reject me and disown me. And so the moralist is convinced that God's love and faithfulness is contingent on their behavior. Does this sound familiar? Have you ever felt this way before? Because I know I have. So let me clarify a couple things. Are Christians to live morally? Yes. Is God concerned with behavior? Yes. But can a moral life replace the need for repentance and faith in Jesus Christ? No, it can't. See, moralism is, is no substitute for the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And the main difference between the two is that moralism says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Whereas the gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. And that's a huge difference. And as we start focusing on our passage today, Paul has been building up the case over and over that the Jews have completely missed the point of what the intention of uh, the covenant law and circumcision was actually about. How could he tell that they missed the point? It was based off of how they lived and acted. They were relying on their moral behaviors and on their good works to save them. And that's called moralism. And unfortunately, moralism wasn't just prevalent back then. It's prevalent today within the church and it masquerades itself as Christianity. And so Paul has us in mind when he's writing these words inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so to help build up his case, Paul says that he points out some reasons why moralism has completely missed the point. And the first reason that we see is that good things are not meant to be ultimate things. Good things are not meant to be ultimate things. Look at Romans 2, verses 17 and on. And we're gonna work our way through this passage. 
Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And so these verses show the privileges the Jews had. They had uh, in their possession the, the covenant, the law, and uh, circumcision. And all of these things are good things. They are not bad things. But they weren't humble about possessing these things. They were actually prideful of them and, and, and prideful of it. And so in verses 21 through 24, we're going to see that they failed to live up to these privileges. They were relying on these good things to earn their acceptance from God. And they even boasted and bragged about it. And so Paul says, hey, good things are not meant to be ultimate things. And so I don't think any of us would argue that being a Christian, going to church, um, you know, learning theology, praying, serving are bad things, right? They're not bad things. They're clearly good things. But when we think that by doing these good things that God will somehow love us a little bit more or accept us a little bit more, then we have turned these good things into ultimate things, into things that uh, we rely on to save us. And when they become ultimate to us, they become the ultimate source to our identity, our joy, our, our peace, and they even make us feel worthy of God. And Paul says, no, no, you've missed the, you've missed the mark. You've missed the point because God never intended to make good things into ultimate things. And so what's a good thing that you are making into an ultimate thing? What's a good thing that you're making into an ultimate thing? For example, I'm an Enneagram 3, um, which is by far the most superior type out of all the Enneagram types. Uh, in case you didn't know, Enneagram 3s are super like highly uh, competitive, right? And so that's a huge characteristic of us. And so you can't beat us or be us, all right? So that's, uh, that's my motto in life. But uh, <laughs> okay, I see some threes. Um, but yeah, you know, that's, that's a big thing. But another characteristic of threes is that they are highly success-driven. And here's the thing. I don't think success is necessarily a bad thing. I think it's a good thing when it's rightly defined by the gospel. When it's rightly defined by the gospel, it is a good thing. And I think, unfortunately, our culture has completely uh, defined uh, success as like an ultimate thing, as more of an ultimate thing that we are to strive for. But I believe that success is when we seek to bring glory to God and, and demonstrate our love for our neighbors in everything that we do. I think that's the definition of success. And if that's the definition of success, of course, I want to be the best, uh, the most successful dad, husband, pastor that I could be, right? Definitely want that. But I would also agree that uh, I would also uh, say that uh, most threes would commonly agree that uh, words of affirmation are part of their love language. That's one of their biggest love languages. And uh, words of affirmation just build and it helps build and encourage threes to continue improving things and to continue raising the bar in everything that they do. But when success becomes ultimate for a three, specifically for me, I'll bulldoze over anyone and everything that stands in my way. Words of affirmation and the approval of others uh, becomes the determining factor to my self-worth and value. And so I crave it more and more. 
And so it's easy for me to turn success, which is a good thing when it's rightly defined by the gospel, into an ultimate thing. But maybe it's something different for you. Maybe it's power, influence, money, relationships, sex, recognition, whatever it may be. Those are good things when they're rightly defined by the gospel. But it's easy to make them the ultimate source of our happiness and our identity. And Paul says, no, no, no. Moralism misses the point because we tend to make good things into ultimate things. And that's not the goal. And so another reason that moralism misses the point is because we are too inconsistent with our behavior. Look at uh, verses 21 and 24 of the same passage. It says, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? Do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So the point of these verses is so clear. Do you practice what you preach? Do you practice what you preach? And if we're being honest we completely fail at doing this all the time. And we know others that completely fail at doing this all the time. Like, has someone ever given you relationship advice uh, and like told you, hey, don't do this, don't do that, and then has completely done the opposite of what they told you and warned you not to do? Has anyone ever done that? Well, I know for me, I had a friend back in, uh, in high school that would do this all the time. And he'd be like, hey, don't focus on, on looks because everyone grows old and looks old one day, right? So get yourself a girl that is smart, treats you right, and is driven. And that's how my girl is, right? I'm like, cool, man, thanks for the advice. And then like two weeks later, he'd break up with his girlfriend and I was like, hey, dude, what happened? And he was like, ah, she just had this zit on her face that I couldn't get past, right? Like what happened with not focusing on looks? See, we're so inconsistent. We're so inconsistent. And that's the, that's the thing about moralism is that, is that it fails because we are too inconsistent in our behavior because, I mean, we can't even keep the law of God, let alone the own rules that we write for ourselves, that we make for ourselves. And so moralism fails because we're too inconsistent with our behavior. And the fundamental weakness of moralism is that you cannot keep the law. And so it is foolish and it is pointless to rely on our good behavior to save us. And so that's a failure for recipe. And the main thing that, that results out of our inconsistent behavior, the verse says that we dishonor God and then people criticize the church for being hypocrites, as verse 23, 24 points out. And so Paul says, no, no, moralism misses the point because we're too inconsistent with our behavior. But yet there's another reason. Man, Paul is ruthless when he's, coming, when he's bringing it, right? He says that outward conformity is not enough. Outward conformity to the law is not enough. Look at verses 25 and on. It says, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit not by the written code. 
And so Pastor Grant did a great job last week at uh, explaining what the importance of circumcision was to the Jews. And if you want a detailed uh, explanation of that, go back and listen to that sermon. What I will say about these verses is that Paul's trying to make the case that the Jews have completely missed the point of what the circumcision was really about. The sign of circumcision was meant to point to the circumcision of our hearts by the Spirit, meaning true heart change and uh, a genuine love for God to follow him and obey him. And so he says, outward conformity to the law is not enough to make you right before God. And so, for example, it's like you can spend all the time and money, invest a a ton of time and money on the exterior of a car, right? Uh, You can get the nicest looking rims, the nicest uh, looking tinted windows, um, whatever, uh, what else? Uh, any car people out here, uh, <laughs> whatever, exterior paint, get consistent car washes, uh, detailing, whatever it may be. Oh, oh, yeah, my favorite is uh, a loud exhaust pipe that you can hear five miles away. Uh, it's, yeah, that's uh, nothing more classier than that, right? Uh, but you can spend all your time uh, on the exterior of this car. But if you neglect to take care of the engine, the heart of the car, it will eventually die. It will eventually die. And so focusing on the exterior of our car is not enough just as much as, uh, as focusing on the conformity to the law on the outward sense, right? And so what outward attribute are you relying on to determine your relationship with God? What outward attribute are you relying on to determine your relationship with God? And an easy way to identify this is what do you do well that you judge others by? For the Jews, it was circumcision. What is it for you? What is it for you? For example, I'm just going to throw out an example. Uh, Maybe you don't curse. Maybe you work really hard at not cursing, and you feel like your relationship with God is closer because of it. But maybe you start judging those that do and feel like you're more spiritual uh, because you don't curse. But maybe you neglect to work on the, the judgment that, comes out of your mouth and the gossip that comes out of your mouth instead or the envy you feel towards others. And so Paul would be the first one to tell you by relying on not cursing, it's kind of useless when the entirety of the law is not obeyed. And that's the thing about moralism is that whatever outward attribute we choose to uphold, we're gonna end up neglecting another one. And we're just going to keep on going through this endless cycle, tireless cycle of constantly trying harder and harder to be perfect on the outside, but nothing's truly changing on the inside. And that's the thing. Moralism cannot bring about true heart change. It can't. And so as we've seen by relying on our proper moral behavior to save us, we have missed the point. We tend to make good things into ultimate things and we uh, are very inconsistent with our behavior and we rely too much on the outward conformity of the law. And so Paul shreds the belief that our good behavior can somehow save us. And so Paul anticipates that people, specifically the Jews, are gonna have several objections to all these claims. And so he anticipates that by preparing some some answers to those questions. And so this takes us into Romans 3, and we're just gonna see a couple verses here. It says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? 
He immediately answers, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. And so essentially, if a Jewish person asks, hey, then are you saying there's no benefit to possessing the covenant law and circumcision? And Paul would say, no, absolutely there is. God wouldn't have entrusted it to you guys if there was no benefit in it. But we so often miss the point of what God intended with those things. And so he's saying, just like the Jews did, and so he's saying, hey, the only thing that's going to lead to is a realization that you cannot faithfully obey and follow God. And so Paul knows that this is the conclusion, this sense of hopelessness, that we all arrive to this place of hopelessness. And so he keeps on, it keeps on pressing in. And so look at verse 3. It says, what if some were unfaithful? He's talking about to the law and to God. Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? And so does your unfaithfulness to God and failure to obey his law and his word cancel out God's love and faithfulness toward you? Maybe we've asked that to God in different ways, like, God, because I've failed you. God, because I've sinned in doing this and that. Are you still for me? Do you still love me? Am I still yours? Do I belong to you still? And yet even more so, how many times do we react to and live out of that doubt that God is no longer for us, that God has rejected us and disowned us? So Paul doesn't waste a minute of our time. And he points us directly to the heart of the gospel to answer that question in verse four. And it says, no, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. Even though we are unfaithful to God, that can never nullify God's faithfulness towards you. God doesn't reject or disown his children when they fail and miss the point. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, some versions say enemies, Christ died for us. See, God showed his immense love towards you while you were his enemy. You don't think God will still love you now that you are sons and daughters of the king? The Bible says that nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing, not even your own unfaithfulness. And my hope in this message is to share with you that although I'm sure there's people in this room that have just felt like they've kept on messing up, messing up over and over again and have failed to obey God and struggle with addictions and all this other stuff and sin and all that. And that they feel that God can no longer love them or care for them because of that. And unfortunately, that's where moralism leads to. It's that guilt. It's that shame. It's those doubts. But the beauty of the gospel and his grace shows us that regardless of our unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. Amen? So as we end today, I want to share with you just a funny story of our family. My daughter, Cadence, uh, she just turned two years old last month. And um, can I say, like, Terrible twos is a real thing, guys. Like, it's a legit thing. It's like uh, overnight she just transformed into a completely different person. It's like she just all of a sudden realized, oh, wow, I'm two. I can be terrible now. And then she had this evil laugh, right? It was super weird. Um, But fun fact about about Cadence is uh, just like her dad, uh, she can't dance. Um, (laughs) I have rhythm in my fingers and neck and that's it. And that's not just when I'm playing keys, guys. That's at like a dance floor. I'm like, right? They're like, what is that? Um, 
But yeah, that's my moves. I have no rhythm in, in, in my hips or feet. And so cadence is the same way. And, uh, but she loves, loves, loves music. And uh, so she attempts to dance to it. And so the song that gets her every single time is uh, Mickey's hot dog, hot dog, hot diggity dog, right? Every time. If you don't know that song, don't worry. The worship team's about to lead us in it. So no worries. You'll get very familiar with it. Um, but yeah, her, uh, literally her dance routine is just twirling spinning, twirling over and over and over, and then just shaking her head back and forth. And so like for two minutes, like no joke. And so I'm like, clearly she's getting like super dizzy doing this. And so I'm like, hey, be careful. No dizzy, no dizzy. And so she stops and looks at me and goes, no dizzy, no dizzy, no dizzy, no dizzy. And just does that for another two minutes. Whoa, I am super, super dizzy right now. But uh, she does that for another two minutes. And it's hilarious because literally she just runs into the wall and crashes into her toys. She looks drunk. It's hilarious. But uh, I'm like, oh my gosh, like literally like that's not what I meant by not getting dizzy, but I am very impressed at how you outsmarted me. Like it's very impressive, right? Uh, but Obviously, this is such a small like interaction that I'm going to have to deal with my children throughout my lifetime as a dad. And, um, and clearly, my daughter missed the point of what I meant by not getting dizzy. But do you think for a moment during that interaction that my heart changed towards my daughter? Like I all of a sudden got ill and was like, I do not want anything to do with you that I wanted to just reject and disown my daughter because she just failed to miss the point. Maybe you're like, clearly not, Ricky. That's such, obviously not. Like that's such a harsh reaction. She's your daughter. You're right. But why are we so quick to think that God would change his heart towards us when we fail and miss the point? Like I have a deep, deep love towards my kids. And it's like something I've never experienced in my life but yet my love towards them is so imperfect compared to God's love for them. God's love and faithfulness is perfect. And so the heart of the gospel is that God's, God is faithful to his, promise, to his promises and children, even when we miss the point and are unfaithful to him. And the gospel speaks to us and reminds us that God's love and faithfulness towards you is not contingent on your behavior. Jesus was the faithful son that perfectly obeyed the law of God since we could never perfectly obey it on our own. So the gospel, unlike moralism, shows me that although I fail at obeying God, he remains faithful. And it's that truth that helps me not get lost in moralism. And it's that truth that points me to his faithfulness that I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to perform to earn anything. And it's his faithfulness that leads me to repent of my sins and turn to Jesus. And it's his faithfulness that leads me to place my trust in Jesus' finished work and not my works. And it's his faithfulness that leads me to be worshipful and thankful in worship. And so remember God's faithfulness towards you. You are not a failure. You are a son and a daughter of the living God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you so much that your love and your faithfulness is not contingent on our behavior. It's not contingent on our works, God. 
So we just thank you so much for what Jesus did to save us, that he was the faithful son that perfectly obeyed the law of God since we could not do it on our own. We thank you for your faithfulness, God. And I just pray right now, Lord, that we would be reminded of that as we go on through our week and being the church on mission, God, that we would be reminded of your faithfulness towards us. Even though when we fail, you will never fail us. You love us so much, God. And so I just pray that we would be reminded of that each and every day. We thank you for your work, God. We thank you for your word as well. We just love you and praise you. And we're gonna continue singing about your faithfulness, God. So we pray these things in Jesus' wonderful and powerful name. Amen.